This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. This podcast is brought to you through support from our partner, the Kaliapea Foundation. The Kaliapea Foundation envisions a future grounded in compassion, respect, dignity, reverence for nature, and care for each other in the earth. To learn more, visit Kaliapea.org. Welcome to For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayanna Young. Anything citizen scientists can do to help, help professional scientists or to, like me, to develop a career of your own uh, is tremendously valuable at this time because the, the environment is changing way faster than we imagined and may even be changing faster than is currently projected. Today we are speaking with Carrie Knudsen. Carrie is a mycological taxonomist and lichenologist at the University of Life Sciences in Prague. Carrie founded a lichen herbarium at the University of California at Riverside and has published 215 papers and articles on lichens. He is a specialist in the lichen biodiversity of Southern California and in the order of acro... Acrosporals. Acrosporals. Yeah. In the order of Acrosporals, which occur around the world. With his wife, Jana Korzerkova, who is also a lichenologist, they have begun a four year project working on lichen biodiversity in the Chihuahuan Desert in New Mexico. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Like I was mentioning earlier, I'm absolutely mesmerized by lichens, as I'm sure you are. And it's really wonderful to be able to share this time with you and focusing on these incredible creatures. So Carrie, you're credited with discovering over 60 species of lichen previously unknown to the scientific field, yet your fascination and dedication to lichen is, as you describe, unorthodox. While it's a simple question, I would love to begin with you sharing your personal story. How and when did you become so enamored with lichens and their complexity? Well, I, I wanted to study botany, and uh, I was forced into retirement by a disability. And uh, so I prepared to go to go back to college to study botany. And uh, the rehabilitation people said I was too old to uh, invest in a college career for me. So uh, I was really depressed. So uh, so. Uh, one day at my desk, in uh, where I had my microscope and stuff, I told my daughters, I said, whatever's behind the house, lichens or mosses, that's what I'm going to study. And uh, luckily that day I found three lichens. And uh, I knew there weren't many people working on biodiversity in that field and no one in Southern California working on it. So I, be- so I began studying it. And uh, from the very beginning, I aimed to be a professional scientist. So... Uh, I became, after about two years of study, I uh, 
joined the Sonoran Flora Project, describing acrosporols for uh, for for uh, Arizona and Southern California. And uh, at the same time, I started a herbarium at UCR, uh, specializing it just in Southern California's lichen flora. And Southern California is really diverse because it has deserts, mountains, and even eight. It has a large coastal area and eight islands. So, so for the last 18 years, I studied this whole area, built up a herbarium just on on Southern California, and wrote mostly about Southern California lichens. Thank you for sharing that. And your story is an inspiring reminder of the importance and tremendous impact that citizen science or perhaps intimate immersion with the earth has, especially during this time. So I just love if you could share more on the beginnings of this process. And does citizen science take on new meanings in this age of loss? Well, yeah, one thing that's, especially here in America, you can see under Trump, there's an attack on scientific funding. Also, in terms of museums, herbariums, there's a there's a low amount of investment going on in, in all of North America in, in these institutions, in most universities. So, so right now, if a person can do professional work or help people doing professional work, it's invaluable. Because at this time, taxonomy and biodiversity, despite all the talk about them, is really being uh, ignored. See, right now we came out of a molecular biological revolution in science. This is really important and uh, it'll be changed the whole 21st century, how we look at this. But in this earlier phase, it was de-emphasized field work in, and understanding species in order to master the uh, molecular biology. Now, that's being balanced in the field now. But still, there's there's a lagging in, uh, in taking care of the biodiversity of the Earth here, especially in North America. See, for instance, people studying biodiversity go down to the tropics, of course, because the Amazon, for instance, is being deforested at a tremendous rate. But at the same time, here in places like California, with climate change going on, you have constant droughts all through the Southwest, California included, and you're having these tremendous fires. For something slow growing like lichens or even rare plants, uh, these fires come through and, and wipe out a whole habitat. As you know, some of these fires are as big as New Jersey that have happened in California. So anything citizen scientists or, can do to help help professional scientists or to like me to develop a career of your own uh, is tremendously valuable at this time because the, the environment is changing way faster than we imagined and may even be changing faster than is currently projected. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I deeply agree with everything you said from the importance of people becoming involved and knowing that they're really needed. People are really needed in supporting data collections because although I do have... <laughs> some issues around data collections, but this type of biodiversity collections, I think, is so meaningful and important right now. Because like you said, we're losing things quicker than we can even understand or project. Oh, yes, for sure. We're losing them fast. A good example is right now, we're working on a paper describing six new species for Calif Southern California. And uh, 
luckily these are in the desert where they have a longer chance of lasting but some of the stuff we recently described we have only two or three locations of in areas like in conifer forest where fires are happening at a really rapid rate Mm -hmm. i'd imagine many of us even those who see a great deal of beauty in lichen may not know you know much about their ancient presence and i've read that some samples of lichen from the Arctic are over 8,000 years old, and that lichens as an organism have been around for perhaps 400 million years. So I'd really love if you could share some of the common traits of lichen, like their extraordinary long lifespans or their slow and steady growth. Yeah, most lichens grow really slow, like maybe a micron a year or so. Uh, there, there's exceptions in, in, in tropic areas and in in some, uh, like in the Arctic, some, some things like cladonias grow really fast. But overall, if you see, uh, for instance, in the Mojave Desert here, you can see a lichen the size of a 50 cent piece or a silver dollar, and it can be 50 or 60 years old. Uh the, the reason they grow so slow is they have an alga or cyanobacteria in it as a symbiont. And most of the time, they only are photosynthesizing or actually alive and, and working only like early in the morning, during rainstorms, high humidity, and then the rest of the time, they're dormant. So uh, if there's a secret to long life in lichens, it would be that we spend most of our time asleep. Hmm. Mm. On looking for lichens, you've said, quote, When I'm looking for lichens, my mind is clear and I'm completely visual. There is an art to looking for lichens, a non-rational appreciation of reality, end quote. I was hoping you could expand upon this and then perhaps share with us your appreciation of lichens from a contemplative or aesthetic perspective as dreamlike objects of wonder rather than items of scientific categorization. Yeah, for sure. Uh, because science is basically a rational process. I mean, if I'm I'm looking at at diversity. I'm analyzing it. I spend most of my time in a lab looking at a microscope, uh, doing measurements, uh, studying literature, writing. All that is a real rational activity, and you can get sucked up into that. Also, the collecting. Uh, I can agree with you that there's a lot of miscollecting being done, and that's. That's another part of it. It becomes like an avarice, uh, rational activity of, of collecting things. Now, two things I, I really think we have in nature is both, first thing, the contemplative part. I'm an atheist, of course, but but in nature, even when I'm doing scientific work, I try and stop several times during the day. And maybe every time I look at something and I just stop and, and uh, have my mind completely silent and just feel complete unity with, with reality. And uh, that's a feeling that you can get in nature in small areas or in big, large areas like a redwood forest. It's, it's in you, and it's feeling that unity with uh, reality and with life that we're part of a giant process of life that goes back billions of years. That part, I think, is is every scientist should be practicing that, and all of us can appreciate that in nature. The other part is the aesthetic part. That's a little different. 
that means your mind's clear and you, you really observe. So you enjoy like the colors. For me, the lichens are beautifully colored, most of them. But you enjoy the colors, the shapes. You enjoy the beauty of the relationships of things. And that's basically very visual. And But also includes your hearing, hearing sounds. And that part's aesthetic, but that's a different wavelength in your brain. And uh, the second part, what I was first talking about, uh, the contemplative part, that takes a little relaxing. And for some people, they have to get beyond just thinking or just being active, hiking and as a sport. And you just have to relax and really let yourself go. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, I felt you in it. And I feel really similarly myself when I'm in the forest and I'm building relationships with the plant life mm-hmm. and the mycological life, the lichen life. And I agree, lichens are just incredibly beautiful and mesmerizing. And and I the colors are incredible, the shapes and the way they grow mm-hmm. onto one another. Like I'm thinking of this one lichen that I don't know the name of, but it it kind of is like the seafoam green. And then at the end, there's these little dark orange red balls at the end of, uh-huh. and they're just, you know, you look and it feels like there's <laughs> worlds within worlds in lichens. So I, yes. I, I really feel you. Now I want to go back to, you know, you had mentioned fires and lichens, as you also mentioned, take an incredibly long period of time to grow further testament to this would be that it takes over 50 years for lichens to recover after being exposed to fire. And in California, Mm -hmm. especially Southern California, we have seen an increase in fires and we probably will continue to. So I'm curious as to what the lichen population is going to look like in California should these fires continue to grow or even how the lichen population has changed in the last couple of years. Well, there's two things going on. One thing is, well, we'll take Cajon Pass, which you leave leave uh, Southern California's coastal area between the San Bernardino and uh, San Gabriel Mountains and go out to Mojave. This is a long pass through there. It had a lot of fires in the 1990s. It had good chaparral, good soil conditions, uh, uh, good rocks, a lot of rocks, and it would have been a good lichen area. There's even some historical records from 100 years ago from this area. After the 1990 fires, when I was doing a survey of the San Bernardino Mountains, I could not find any lichens through this whole area. Okay, and that's after 20 years. So, and that's a little bit drier habitat. So, so we're getting these lichen deserts, okay? Where, where the fire has burnt through and because of fragmentation of the environment with housing, urban development, freeways and, st- and other things, there's, there's not easy for the lichens to recolonize an area. So you have either these lichen deserts or if the conditions are right and at least some lichens get back established, uh, there's lower diversity. So because to, uh, a good lichen habitat, say like on the Channel Islands, where there's hardly been any fires off the coast of California, these habitats, even though they've been destroyed by grazing somewhat, uh, some of the vegetation and things, this is, this is a continuous habitat since before the Pleistocene. So you have like literally three, 400 species all within a 20 square mile area. 
So we don't know how much diversity has already been lost in Southern California from fires. But I would say that it's been, there's one thing, another factor besides this not being able to recolonize well is uh, during the Pleistocene, a place like Southern California or parts of the desert, even New Mexico, were, were a different habitat. They usually had summer and winter rains and the they were much more moister than they are now. A good example in Southern California is fir trees grew down to 1,500 feet. They're now up around 5,000 feet. And so you had a lot of things that had moved from the glacier south during the Pleistocene. And then as the climate changed into the Mediterranean period, and we, we grew like, for instance, Southern California and uh in Southern California, there's no summer rains. So as that climate developed, most of the species that had moved from the north in this direction began to disappear. And in fact, uh, many of the species are now that we know were even collected at the beginning of the 20th century are now 500 miles north of here. So those things have been disappearing for sure. In the Santa Monica Mountains, for instance, along the coast, Okay, there was a collector of lichens there from 1890 to 1918. From 1890 to 1918, when he collected, it was the beginning of a period when the rainfall, rainfall in the, along the coast began to decrease. And uh, there's been a general decrease since the turn of the 20th century in the amount of rain in Southern California. When this man died in 1918, he'd been collecting in the Santa Monica Mountains for over 20 years, and uh, his records are at Harvard. Now, I've went through all his records, and at least 70 lichen species that he collected, I could not find. And in the Santa Monica Mountains, for instance, this area if is uh, chaparral oak trees, and chaparral can get really thick. It, if it stays moist year-round, it won't catch fire so bad. I mean, if it stays moist and there's constant rainfall and stuff, it, it's uh, you don't have a drying out of the brush and stuff. But what happened is, is uh, starting in the 1920s began large-scale fires. And so, so we can pretty well, except for some things like building highways along the coast, almost all of those 70 species disappeared probably within about 20 years. That's unbelievable to just learn how fragile these yeah. species are. Oh, yeah, because they can't reproduce fast enough. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, additionally, as someone who is now studying lichen outside of Southern California, I was hoping you could speak to how lichen populations and diversity will change as a result of climate change. Residential and commercial development and pollution, especially pollution, which, as I understand it, is one of the most serious threats to the health of lichen. We already know that lichens aren't able to grow in cities or around industrial sites. So with the increased right. and widespread air pollution that is transpiring globally, it's apparent that lichens face more than just one threat. So to what extent are right. lichens facing endangerment? Is your immense cataloging and recording of lichens propelled by the understanding that the landscape is rapidly transforming? 
Well, one, one thing with the air pollution thing, say just from nitrates, even if the lichens are able to absorb the nitrates and not be affected, it changes, for instance, on ones on bark, it changes the pH of the bark and causes a decrease in habitat. It causes an acidification of the bark. And uh, so that's the main problem with air pollution. It was much worse when we were in sulfur dioxide and having acid rains. So some stuff is coming back, but it's being limited by this nitrates, which are which are selecting towards certain species that are more common. Uh, the other thing with the uh, even in the Pacific Northwest and stuff, this this constant droughts is the main problem though, because it's still a fire hazard. That's probably the biggest danger I see going on even in the next hundred years. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, air pollution is a problem. But yeah, that's that's a that's a problem here in Southern California too. But in our in my own observations in in for instance Southern California, and this is an area with heavy nitrate pollution. We still have overall, if you just go even a little bit into the mountains or out into the desert, we still have high diversity. So there, so that's not that's not as serious as this fire thing. Even in the desert, for instance, in Joshua Tree, uh, there's grass. Uh, different kinds of bromas came in, are invasive grasses that are in the in the desert. So what used to be a fire that would start and just burn for some brush and be uneven now like has all this fuel from the built up brome and just burns for through and burns down the Joshua trees. One of the biggest Joshua tree areas was completely burnt with some of the biggest trees that are in Joshua tree. And uh, and it's all from this buildup of grasses. See, that's another thing that's a problem with, with all these, with lichens is, is it's these invasive species that come in and, and uh, add to the fuel load in areas too, besides the fire. Hmm. Wow, that's... So it's uh, it, lichens are going to have a tough time anyway in the next 300 years as we go through this uh, this extinction event we're living through. Yeah, it's fascinating and really depressing to hear what happened in Joshua Tree and these invasive grasses that are giving more fuel and and helping the fires burn longer and and more potently. So it's hard to hear, but it's important to hear. And I do want to just mention around air pollution. I remember when I was learning about usnea and uh-huh. I had heard, you know, if you're seeing usnea, then that's a good sign that air pollution is not uh, overtaking the area per se. Um, right. But then I also thought about, I had read that usnea was also uptaking cesium-137 from the Fukushima fallout. And so uh-huh. I was kind of trying to balance the understanding that these lichens um, can survive when there isn't so much air pollution, yet they are uptaking pollution from from the air. And, you know, I know usnea for a lot of people is used for herbal medicine. And so to think about right. what are the lichens uptaking and then how is that going into our body if we are using it as medicine. But then, of course, the flip side of that is if it's in the medicine, it's in everything. We can't escape. Um, from it so you know of course we should be careful about what we take into our body and where it's coming from but we there's nowhere to run from this global you know there there's one thing that's a little bit different with lichens is is they have a in order to have a to grow an algae or cyanobacteria within it it the fungus develops a thallus that's that's uh 
contains the alga or photobiont, which from which it derives its nutrition. Okay, this this thallus, whether it's like stringy with usnea or looks like a leaf, or like crustose like and looks like a bunch of uh, uh, bumps. This thallus has a lot of space in it. And uh, the lichens are able to like uh, make cysts out of stuff. Uh, they're able to have these chemicals come in and they just isolate them within themselves. So lichen, so we were doing a, in a lichen air pollution study that, that my wife was just working on in the Arctic in uh, Norway, up in the very top of Norway, they decided that lichens, it was better to study the top layer of a moss that grows year by year than to study lichens for, for trying to do, to calibrate the air pollution over a period of time. The reason is the, the lichen keeps storing the pollutants within it, and it has the space to do that and isolate it without being poisoned. So, so lichens probably, if you're in an area where you're concerned about air pollution or uh, or <laughs> radiation or whatever, lichens are more likely to have concentrated this stuff than say a plant that grows in one year or moss. So uh, yeah, I, I'd be uh, I'd I'd watch where I collect my uh, my herbal medicines. Like all living organisms, lichens too, of course, they play meaningful roles. They're food sources for many beings, slugs, squirrels, mites, and even humans, like we were just talking about with medicine and, and whatnot. And they serve as nesting material and are home to so many microorganisms and insects. And they also aid in soil formation, establishing vegetation. And I raise this topic of their ecological importance in connection to the way in which we assign value to the natural world. I assume many of us would overlook lichen or maybe even dismiss it as inconsequential being. And I know culturally we fail to recognize the inherent value of really any organism, human beings included. So I'd really mm -hmm. like to transition to a conversation on what you noted as a um, utilitarian versus capitalist view in the field of lichenology and beyond. And especially it seems that now more than ever, if we don't change our value system, we stand to lose so much. And I think about how the fate of lichens in the Anthropocene is akin to that of insects, wherein 
so right. little is known about either that it's not even feasible to even understand what the repercussions are should they disappear. So how do you, or how do these value systems influence the way in which we understand lichen? Well, I'll give you a good example of this this attitude. I was giving a, a walk on on one of the Channel Islands. I, oh yeah, Anacap Island, I think. I was giving a walk on Anacap Island for a bunch of uh people that were invited by the national park. See, lichens, no matter what people say, are basically, in terms of human use, useless. I mean, the few you can eat are so few. I mean, the use in medicine, we've been trying to learn if they can, if secondary metabolites and it can protect against cancer and stuff. We still have not got any cures for cancer out of lichens. Lichens are almost totally useless. In fact, in an area, say, like the Mojave Desert has 150 species, Channel Islands has 450 species. In areas like this, almost every one of those lichens is totally useless in terms of human use. So I we were giving a walk, and I was explaining that, and one guy got very angry and says, this is not the way you should should be telling people about lichens. You should be telling them how useful they are to people. And the thing is, is that they're not useful. Just like most insects are not useful. Yes, they're useful for the total ecological landscape and and relationships, but in direct utilitarian terms, they're useless. In fact, that's why there's lichen is not the best career to get into as a scientist either, because uh in uh, most funding, starting back even with Obama, most funding for science is going into, quote, innovation, utilitarian values. I mean, utilitarian projects that can be, can be uh, you know, end up being into enterprise and entrepreneurship. I myself deal with a field that is mostly useless to human beings in the, in the direct sense. Most of nature is like that in terms of doing it in economic terms. I think we really have to move beyond. I ha- We have no choice but to move beyond capitalism. If we're not able to do that during the next three to 400 years, as the climate changes, as environments are, are just degraded by climate change, uh, we could end up in a period that is just, just terrible. I mean, you know, there's much more totalitarian than we are now. I, I, that's the thing I think is the saddest thing to me about what's going on with climate change is because you see the world is being destroyed so quickly, the relationships before that, and it'll happen so fast. Like for instance, rising of the oceans, when it really gets going, it'll happen within a hundred years once it's the major ice fields melt. I mean, you're talking about most of the populations of the world being wiped out for where they live. They're going to have to migrate somewhere. It's going to be a gigantic mess. And we have no way, no way currently as a united people of the earth to deal with this problem. Everything's divided up between different, different economic and political power groups. So unless we move beyond capitalism, we may be heading towards extinction. Well, we are, you know, in so many ways, we are. Yes, I agree. You know, we're we are we're there. We're in the extinction crisis. It's interesting to hear the three four hundred year scenario. I've never heard those numbers before, so I'd I'd like to hear about that and maybe 
also just in terms of extinctions, I, I was reading that right now there's only two lichen listed as threatened or endangered by the U.S. government. And you can compare that to 942 plants and 1,447 animals on the endangered species list. So I think that's interesting to note. And then also on the topic of extinction, I, I just wonder what does and does not get recognized. You know, it's been brought to my attention in doing some of the research for this interview, just how much we've oh, become yeah. reliant on extinction as a metric. You know, so I'm wondering, do you mm -hmm. see any problems with this sort of hyper attention around extinction? Because are we, you know, falling into this trap of only caring about one set of species at a time once they tip towards extinction, rather than focusing our energy and acknowledging the tremendous inherent value of all life? Yeah, well, I, I totally agree with you. That's uh, this whole idea of just concentrating on rare species is is BS, because as important as it is to, to, for instance, save the red wolves down in in the red states or, or uh, make sure that redwoods continue being repopulating and all these things are really valuable. A real wild place is a gigantic relationship of many things that are common. Okay, many of the species are common. It's the whole environment that these rare species, the rarer species also exist in. But by concentrating just on the rare species, it tends to take away from the habitat and appreciating the wholeness of nature and habitats. And uh, a lot of that lichen habitats that are burning in, for instance, Southern California, nobody would consider particularly valuable. They have maybe three or four uh, main chaparral plants, or they have oak trees that are everywhere, coastal live oaks. Uh, they have their granite areas, uh, you know, and they're, they're nothing, there's nothing there that's usually rare in the plants. Well, Southern California does have quite a few rare plants, but a lot of these areas are not that particularly rich in rare plants. Yet when they go, and this is happening all over the world, when these common areas go, you're losing a tremendous part of nature. It's just like when I was saying about these lichen deserts. I mean, you go there and uh, it's, yeah, the plants are there that came back after the fire, the, the habitats there, the rocks and, and the beautiful landscape. The thing is, is one part's gone. And with that one part gone, it's just like when you're in a forest that's, that's been uh, some of these artificial forests where they've been cut down and regrown or areas where you walk in and you hear no sound hardly. Yeah, I think a great thing about this program you got going uh, with your group is that it concentrates on the wholeness of nature. Politically, these, these endangered species things are under constant attack. So, I mean, they're, they're not really that effective overall anymore. They have a built-in economic factor that can be taken to court. And uh, that, that still hasn't been worked out. So without some kind of political change, even this concentrating on rare species is taking us away from concentrating on the protection of all of nature. So uh, I, the, uh, the thing I was talking about three to 400 years is, is I, f I believe that within three or 400 years, we'll reach the, the worst part of this, uh, the melting. If, if everything's done, if we're going to go through a, a melting of the, the polar ice cap and a raising of the ocean levels up to 90 feet. This should happen in, 
I would imagine, four or 500 years. And when we reach that point when it's over and we've gone through all the uh, – the first part of everybody trying to migrate and all the wars that are going to come out of that. I think at that point, we'll reach a point where we'll be looking towards the future if it's not completely out of control. But we'll be seeing in nature, a large amount of the species that exist now be gone. And so that's the, I just use that as a general figure. Well, now that we're into the conversation of extinction and capitalism and and how we were here and what we had to do to, uh, or what I hope that we do in order to protect as much as we can. It just, it's, it would appear to be such a delicate balance between challenging the institutional and structural powers that uphold the system we're in while also working on an individual or conscious level. It would appear that there is a mass paralyzation by a state of unconsciousness. And I often think about how wounded we are as a society. And in a sense, it yes, matters less are. what our governing bodies look like. For example, what does it mean to reject hierarchy and self-govern if ourselves remain untended? So I'm curious if you have any thoughts on direct action in changing society, or perhaps what do you think reality and fantasy is if the facade of our democratic government truly crumbled overnight? Well, firstly, I don't think we're that democratic here in the United States. But anyway, say, for instance, if it's possible for an end to capitalism, okay, I think we're entering the best possible period for this to happen. First thing we have, we're facing a crisis that most people do not realize it now. Within the next hundred years, everybody will realize we're facing this. We're facing this in the same way we'd be facing an alien evasion. We're all in it. And then at that point, it's the first time in history that we we all face a common enemy. And so I think that's one thing that'll be historically different than even the period we're living in now. The second thing is, is the failure of our current capitalist economy and the, the nation state, individual nation state organization we have of the world will have proven itself to most people that it's been a complete failure. Third, with the uh, destruction of habitat, the vast migrations, the, the social uh, chaos that'll come out of this, large areas that uh, problems with food, all of these problems will create pressures to push people towards action. So real change anytime in history has to come from real factors more than one individual choice. And I think so. I think I'm, I'm really positive that if ever there was a chance to, for a major change, it'll come out of these terrible events. Because for once, we have a reason to be united as a people around the earth. I think you have to also keep in mind this. Okay, if you were living in Rome in uh, the year 60, you wouldn't be able to imagine, imagine that there'd be anything beyond the Roman Empire. You might like say, hey, man, I don't really like these people fighting each other in the Colosseum 
and killing each other. But, well, anyway, it's happening here. You'd be complaining about, yeah, only rich people run this this society I'm in. I run a bar down here. It's uh, I have to pay the, the Roman soldiers a bribe to, in order to operate here. You would like you wouldn't be able to imagine or living in 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 Europe in the Middle Ages that things would ever be different. And so we have to always keep that in mind that while we we should never be depressed completely by the period we live in, massive changes could happen within the next 100 or 200 years and there's no way we can imagine them or see how they're connected with our lives now. I can see, like, just say with this this millennial thing that's going on about socialism, you know, at least this understanding that government has to do more. It's not just a free market society. Okay, this is just, that's millions of people are coming to this conclusion. This is the way change happens. So there is no, there's a dynamic between your individual life. You should not feel like alienated because you can't, quote, do anything. For instance, I, I work on these lichens all the time, okay? I write papers about them. I do inventories so, so people know what's in a particular area. I describe new species, many of which may not even be here in 100 years, okay? That's all I have time to do. I've had, in the rest of my life, I've had time to raise a family with, where I had to do a lot of work for and, and I don't feel depressed by what's happening. And that's all you can do. For instance, you're doing this show. You guys have a good foundation. I was glad to donate $25 to it. And that may not seem like enough, but it's all of what we can do as an individual is limited. We shouldn't feel like despair because we can't do more. I think we need to, to just Keep moving in the direction we're all moving, and there's big cultural changes going on. And we just go with these cultural changes and believe that just like the butterfly that beats its wings and causes a, a rainstorm around the other side of the world, you know, we have to embrace the chaos of our lives. I'm, I'm very hopeful for the future myself. But unfortunately, I think this with we're going to be entering into a new earth. So things are done to really change a lot, and it's unfortunate.
a lot of what you said picked me up a little bit from my my drooping yeah, shoulder yeah, it's, feeling. It's like, easy to get depressed, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so thank you for saying all that. And and in terms of things that make me feel better and, and kind of pull me out of that dark hole that I know I can get into and I'm sure many of the listeners can get into when we're learning cool. about all the destruction is, you know, for me it's the forest or even or the desert or any of these incredible landscapes, but thinking for me of the forest, when I look at lichen and moss and spend time in the deep forest, there's times that I'm reminded of fairy tales and of the magical stories Uh that relate to the world of hidden forest and beyond. And in my mind, it's no accident that the forest is so often a canvas for magic. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I'd love to ask a question that I hope isn't too far-fetched, I'm thinking back to our notions of value systems, but this time in the context of magic. More specifically, do you think the loss of or uh, degeneration of magic in dominant culture coincides with the destruction of life itself? And would you say that simultaneously, as you learn about lichen, have you found a magic of sorts that's accessed through deep attunement to and with the natural world? Well, I think that the essence of magic is imagination. In a modern world that we live in through our cultural changes, magic now is the ability to imagine the impossible. So just like we're talking about a world beyond capitalism, that's magic to imagine something, something beyond what we're living in now. And the places like the forests, uh, studying lichens, what's really in that quietness that you get out of that, the deep experience, that gives you a space for the magic of imagination. And we have to imagine a world better than the one we live in now in order for it to come into being. And in nature is that space is that silence where the imagination can grow. You turn off your cell phone, you turn off your computer, you don't watch any television, you go out there where it's nice and silent and you get in touch with yourself and you get in touch with your dreams. And I think that's the magic that's in nature. I I agree with you that imagination is magic and creativity. And I always think to myself, Usually I I am connected to a magic through the forest and over this winter things were really really busy and I felt at times that I was kind of drowning in the day-to-day bureaucracy of life and I remember right, thinking yeah. to myself I'm like well gosh Ayana magic isn't going to come in creativity isn't going to come in if there's no place for it you know, magic is magical. Magic is a star of the show and they need they need a place at the table and they need to be served and they need to have offerings to them. And and so it really was clear to me and I've and I know I felt this before that we have to turn off the TV, turn off the phone. We have to turn off these mechanisms that distract us in order to allow magic, creativity, imagination to uh, show us anything to offer us anything and, and if we're not offering that space and that respect and that gratitude 
to magic and so on. We're not going to be able to tap into the immensity of what it is. And I can say for me, you know, when, when I get lost in the despair, when I can tap into the magic of the land and within myself, things begin to open and possibilities begin to open. Mm -hmm. I really feel that deeply. And I wanted to go back a bit because as we're talking about possibilities and imagination and this so on and so forth, it makes me think again about mm -hmm. citizen science. And for all those who are listening to this interview and they're wanting to step into the magical realm of lichens or, or in really, you know, any kind of science around, citizen science around the land, what are some tips or tools or uh, advice that you would give those folks who really want to commit and really want to dedicate themselves to the service of these creatures? Well, uh, at least here in the Pacific Northwest and in California, you could, uh, first thing, there's books. Okay, there's books on lichens. And so the first part always in, in learning about an organism, okay, is, is, uh, is the naming, okay? I think the first part, actually the most important part, is to just get out there and experience and look, okay, and, and start to absorb whatever part of nature you're interested in. Then the naming comes in and you start to learn to name, okay? At that point, you usually need to contact other people, and uh, for lichens, there's, for instance, a Northwest lichenologist in, in uh, the Pacific Northwest. There's a California Lichen Society in Southern California. I mean, in Northern California. They're not actually too active in Southern California, just a few members. There's, a, for instance, a new lichen curator at the Santa Barbara Botanical Garden that's already in her first month going out and taking people out into nature. You look for something like this. Uh, you may be too far away from something like that, so you don't give up. Lichens like insects and stuff are a little hard, are hard to work on. Okay, so I started working on them with a dissecting microscope. With dissecting microscope, just to look at them up close or with a hand lens, you need you need to look at them. You need to look at them in, with with equipment. You need to be able to look up closer than you can see with your eye. So that creates a problem with this because then you have to have a dissecting microscope. And then if you're going to try to identify them, you usually need a, a compound microscope. So once you've made that commitment, then you're up into a different level. And when you make that kind of commitment, then you, you're going to have to really study and it, you could, it's like learning to play guitar, though. You could do it in 15 minutes and a half hour a day and, and become good at it. But that's the level where, where citizen science is, starts to become real science. And then it's just, don't forget, science wasn't like it is now. Science originally began with people studying stuff as a hobby, basically. Science, the word science is only a couple hundred years old. And now it's a whole academic thing, whole uh, government agencies and stuff. Once you've reached that level, then you're going to need to connect with, with either people working at universities. Another thing is, is any area, even if you can't contact these, these social groups or if you don't have a good contacts at a university or meet the right people at a university, go to any national park any reserve, any any national forest, 
There's people there. They are so understaffed that anything you want to work on, you can you can get help with. You can or you can volunteer. Say, for instance, the Joshua tree, they have money to study the drying out in Mojave Desert. The rainfall's going down. And so they're worried about the existence of the Joshua trees. You can go in and volunteer to help collect the data for that. Uh, and then if you're like me, when I started studying lichens, I was uh, I wanted to understand what I was doing. So for the first two years, I never contacted anybody. I studied what was in the hills behind my house, which was basically private property so we could collect there. And then I went and called the state park. I mean, I went and called the National Forest for this Cleveland National Forest, got hold of the botanist, and they gave me a permit to go out and learn. And and I was just, all I was supposed to do is contact them if I found anything interesting. So this higher level, getting into the real science, and you're not just also just collecting data for, say, like this Joshua tree thing, you don't need to know anything about but you don't need to be a botanist to do that. If you're going to this higher level of science, what, no matter what you're studying, there's almost always an, a need for that. You can get help from the national parks. And then usually in most things you study, there's a regional expert. And these people are enthusiastic if you can get hold of one to talk to anybody that's interested in, in what they're interested in. So what I did is is then once I felt confident about what I was doing and got my direction, once I got a permit and then was able to collect more material and study it, then I started contacting scientists that were uh, they were already ag- academically established, asking questions, uh, writing them. This you could do this with botany, insects. It's not just lichens, and I got answers from most of them. So there's different levels of of what you I don't like the term citizen science in some ways, but there's different levels of this involvement you can have without being an academic and having a doctorate. So it's possible to go through these stages. Once you've reached the stage where you're working on a field, okay, you're not going to be able to do well, we will be able in the future. But right now, for instance, you won't be able to do molecular biology so you, you can only you'll have to realize when it, you're getting into something like lichens, insects or whatever you're studying, that you're not going to be able to have access necessarily to the, the most advanced techniques. So what I did when I got into this is I said, OK, I'm, I'm not going to have money for molecular work. I'm not going to be able to go study that. I said, so what I can do is I can do biodiversity studies. So you find out what you can do, look at the field, and you can get an idea of what's needed. So I knew that nobody was working in Southern California. I knew that a flora was coming up, that they needed information for that. I know that the places I went to were interested to know what lichens they had. So I was able to fill a gap that was missing. So whenever you're getting into one of these fields, you look for a a gap where you can fill in a spot. This is if you're becoming going straight into the science. And so you can, on that level, you can become a citizen science, a, a real scientist without being uh, having an academic degree. 
The only trouble with this, though, is making money. So, I mean, you have to balance this with somehow making a living. I'm, I myself was forced into disability, so I had a pension coming in. So, so I was able to do it full time. And then now I actually, actually I'm retired now, and I, I have actually have a job at a university doing this. I was hired by this university in Europe because of the amount of writing I do which is much more than many, many scientists do. So it's unlimited what you can do if that's what you really want to do in something like this. You just have to follow like the advice I gave you. And if you're working on this stuff, once you get into the science part, you have to, from the very beginning, aim to be really good. So that means like really mastering the field, which you can do. By the way, even at a university where we train people, uh, my wife has students all the time that I deal with. Once you get past the, the uh, initial first four years, basically even a scientist at a university learns by doing it themselves. So you shouldn't feel like uh, if you're going to get into this and you have the ability to do it, you shouldn't feel like any inferiority complex to somebody that's that's going to a university. In fact, in a lot of ways, you're more free than they are. I, I mean, you know, I'd be happy if just everybody noticed lichens and enjoyed them for their surreal and uh, psychedelic colors. And if they didn't do science, just were aware of that. Then the second level, of course, is to learn to name them. And you can learn that by going to any of these groups. You go out with a group of people that know what they're doing, and you can easily pick up 10, 15 genera in a day. And a lot of them, because they're by colors and stuff, you can learn fairly quickly. Getting the real science, then, is dedication. I hope that helps a little. I'm not sure what, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, it helped, and I, I'm grateful for how thorough you were. I think it's going to really be a good roadmap for folks listening who want to be more dedicated. Well, as we wrap up this wonderful conversation, thank you so much, Carrie. I just want to oh. offer the floor one more time for anything that maybe wasn't mentioned that you want to make sure people hear about. But otherwise, this has been such a rich and um, moving conversation. So thank you. Yeah, I just want to say I think it was great that we talked about a world beyond the one we live in now. Because from the magic of imagining... The second part of magic is will. And from that, from that imagining, we can get the will to change this world. Thank you for listening to another episode of For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayana Young. The music you heard today was from the Savage Young Taterbug. I'd like to thank our incredible podcast team, our podcast audio producer, Andrew Storrs, our media researcher and writer, Francesca Glassfell, Aaron Wise with social media coordination, Hannah Wilton with guest coordination, and Carter Lou McElroy our podcast music coordinator. If you haven't already, please rate us on iTunes. Also, check us out at forthewild.world. And if you haven't already, you should definitely see what's happening over at Patreon. All right, thanks so much, and until next time.